Hello, everyone. I'm Laura Rabin, and this is Ad Positivity. Today, I have Ingrid Lee from Delray Beach. She was born and raised in Miami, Florida. She attended Florida State University, achieving her Bachelor of Arts in International Affairs with a minor in Italian. Before moving her family to Florida, she studied abroad and lived in Florence, Italy and served in the US Peace Corps in Thailand. And now she has been a resident of Delray Beach for 18 years, where she is raising her two sons and is married to Keith. Welcome, Ingrid. Hi. So, so much to talk about, and I just wanted to make sure we start recording before we have these interesting conversations. I've known you for 14 years, <laughs> I think. It's about, just about, I think so. When the boys, the eldest sons were in, a, we were in a mommy group together. Yes, they were just babies. Some mutual friends, a couple of mutual circles. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to uh, invite you to be a guest on the show because I think you have such a um, a global perspective on living and life, and um, I just I just admire the way that you raise your boys, and and I just wanted to share everyone uh, share you with everyone that is listening. So tell me about, um, let's start in the beginning. Tell me about um, growing up in, in Miami. Growing up in Miami, gosh, it was back in the 80s. Um, so I'll date myself a little bit. And um, we could do anything we wanted, really, because our parents both worked and um, had long schedules. My dad at one point worked on a train which involved being gone for long spans of time. And my mom was working full time and getting her law degree when I was little. And um, so it was really just us kids and we could pretty much do whatever we wanted. Um, we had a lot of independence and, you know, walked ourselves to and from school. And I mean, a lot of um, parents, I think back then just really weren't as hands-on as we are expected to be now. <laughs> um, you know, kids were just expected to go to school and, and run their own lives, so to, so to speak. So, and that was marvelous. I loved it. We'd walk to the corner store, um, go visit friends after school, you know, uh, get all these weird experiments. We used to jump off the roof. That was fun. <laughs> um, but specific to Miami, um, I, the heat and the humidity, I think, are pervasive throughout my childhood, and um, there was a lot of diversity, but kind of in chunks um, where I lived. So, um, and at different parts of my childhood, there I had exposure to different groups of people, but not necessarily all mixed. Like we talk a lot about it being a, a salad bowl, or people call it what do they call it now? The Melting pot. Melting pot, right. But we're really not a melting pot. It's, it's more like a, um, in Miami, at least when I was a kid, it was more like, a, I don't know, like a dinner plate where everybody's on the same plate, but they have their separate little sections. And, yes. Um, sometimes you could take a fork full of the beans and the mashed potatoes. <laughs> so you have a couple of groups mixing. But um, yeah, it's definitely not, was not a melting pot. But, you know, I, I loved my childhood in Miami. Yes. And I think um, you and I were both down there during Hurricane Andrew. What kind of experience was that like for you? We were actually away, um, which is crazy because now school starts so early. Um, and Andrew was at the end of August. And we were up in Virginia. I think in Williamsburg area and uh, I got to watch it on TV and it was very stressful because I wasn't there. Mm -hmm. um, and my high school um, had just opened when Andrew hit, I believe within a year or two of, of Andrew and we had significant damage to the roof. And I was really worried about all my friends because it, it struck South Miami worse. 
um, than I lived up in, in the northern end of the county. So um, it was stressful watching it from a distance and, and feeling kind of helpless and then coming home and seeing all the devastation and, mm-hmm. but also being kind of thankful that it didn't hit my house in New Orleans, you know, like we, yeah. I don't even think we had a pot blow over for Andrew, you know, it was, it was like a non-event at my, right. in my neighborhood. Right. And what a difference, you know, 10 miles makes. Um, Cause we, where I was, we were, we were right at that cutoff line in, in Kendall uh, East Kendall, Pinecrest area, and it was just devastation from from kind of our area south. So that was a huge, um, that had a huge impact on me, and I wouldn't discover that until years later when I was in therapy, <laughs> you know, um, kind of digging into my childhood and, and all the things that may have affected um, me and the way I cope and, and that sort of thing. So, um, so, and then you're off to Florida State <clears throat> for college. How was that? Survival. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, honestly, I went to school down where you uh, were raised. I went to school at Braddock, which was uh, on Southwest 147th Avenue or something, really, really far from my house. And almost everybody that I knew was going to University of Florida. And I was like, I have nothing against the Gators. I didn't particularly like Florida State over UF at the time. I just didn't, and I loved high school. I just didn't want to relive the high school experience at college. Yeah. And I was like, you know, we're only going to be a couple of hours from each other. If we really want to see each other, we're right down the road. But I want to have my own experience in college and, and it's something that's unique and not just, you know, have a repeat. So that was really one of the reasons why I picked um, Florida State is because I, I liked the campus and I just liked that it wasn't going to be um, exactly the same. Yeah. Right. Right. And Tallahassee is beautiful. I did spend my freshman year uh, in Tallahassee. And uh, so I say I'm one seventh Seminole. Um, <laughs> and the orange and blue, uh, you know, runs pretty deeply, but. Uh, we love our Florida schools. Um, yes. So tell they me. support Florida no matter what. For sure. Um, so then you went to Florence, Italy? Mm-hmm. And yeah. that was almost a rebellion too because when I, my high school was like 90 something percent um, Latin. So we had a lot of Spanish speakers and I look like I could be from a Spanish speaking country. And um, so people would always just assume that I spoke Spanish. And growing up in Miami, you got taught Spanish from kindergarten. Yes. Um, and so I guess I resented people just assuming that I should speak Spanish. So I, I learned German and I learned Italian kind of in rebellion of that. <laughs> and um, re- I, I, in retrospect, I really regret that because I wish I had um, taken advantage of all the abuelas and the moms and the, the friends and whatever that I had in high school that I could have just practiced fluency and stuff like that and I didn't but um so I I fell in love with Italian in high school and I did like a quick spring break trip or whatever um my junior year and then um so when I went to college and I needed a minor I said oh I'm going to take Italian because and and Florida State at the time I don't know now had a wonderful group of professors um for Italian who really emphasized fluency um and so that was amazing. Uh, I, I, I learned a lot and forgot a lot of Italian um, at the time. And um, so Florida State has a campus in Florence. And so I went there initially as a student. And then I went back as a, a counselor, uh, like a residence counselor, mm-hmm. which was really neat. So I got to go twice to Florence. And that was, that was nice. That's really neat. And, and then you were involved in the Peace Corps. Mm-hmm. Tell me about Thailand. I know your um, your your are your roots there, or or no, no, <laughs> no, no connection at all. I think on the application for Peace Corps, they said, you know, what areas do you want to go? And I said, you know, South America. I'm trying to remember what I said. Central Europe, South America, Central Europe, and Asia. I just threw in there just as a lark. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I was actually living in Italy when they um, 
told me what my assignment would be. And it would just blew my, I was like, I know absolutely nothing about Thailand. I think I've eaten, uh, my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, had taken me to a Thai restaurant maybe twice <sighs> at that point. So I knew nothing about the food, nothing about the culture. I literally, even as an international affairs student, embarrassingly, I had to go look where it was. Like I kind of knew, you know. <laughs> I was like, oh, they're the Southeast Asian tigers. And I know that they're somewhere over by Vietnam. It was really bad. Um, so I had to go basically school myself on it. And I wasn't really sure that I was going to go um, ultimately because it was so unfamiliar. And literally, if you put your finger on Miami and go through the globe, yes, you hit Thailand. Like it, it's the opposite end of the world. And so that was... Um, completely, completely foreign and like as foreign as I possibly could have gone. And so that was a big decision. And I was dating my husband, uh, my boyfriend at the time who became my husband. And so choosing to leave in the middle of that was um, very difficult. You know, when I applied, I hadn't been dating anyone. And so, but he was just like, if this is your dream to go to the Peace Corps and then you stay back and miss this opportunity, for a relationship, you're going to resent it. And so he was like adamant that I had to go <laughs> somewhere, not necessarily Thailand, but he was like, you have to do this because it's something you wanted before we even, you know, were dating. Right. And Keith is awesome. Yeah. He's so, he's so awesome. And I'm so glad that he, he pushed you to do that. Me too. What an experience. <laughs> what an experience. Um, so I see also that um, let's talk about relationships or at least married 16 years and um, you make you make a comment about um, that that knowing knowing ourselves and being you know loving ourselves is the most important thing because we're all living kind of in our our own world, our own reality. And mm -hmm. if we can learn to kind of master that, then um, our, the experiences around us um, are kind of on them. Um, so explain, explain what you mean by, um, you know, the challenge of kind of knowing yourself and loving yourself first. Yeah, I, I, I don't even think that like, I don't, I don't know. I think that like self-love just wasn't even on my radar. You know, I think like I, I mentioned in, um, to you before that like uh, growing up, uh, I watched my brother a lot and took care of him. And so I was always an outward person and I'm, I'm much more of a caregiver and a doer. And so the idea of, um, you know, well, who am I and what do I want who, and what are my needs? And it just really wasn't even on my radar. And I think society sometimes tries to push you to say that like, you know, this other person or this other experience is what brings you your happiness or, completes you I, you know that movie the love story where they say you know you complete me and things like that um so we're kind of pushed this message that um other things outside of you make you happy whether it's a relationship or travel or um having kids or buying a house i mean you just list it off like there's a bazillion right. things that we're kind of told these are the things that are here to make you happy and um, I think at one point I just realized that everything is really kind of external and that everything um, really kind of stems from me. So if I look outside and it's raining and I, and I decide that like, okay, well now my day is ruined and, and then kind of go down that path, then it, then it becomes the reality. And that even if um, we're all sitting in a tragic situation. Each one of us is experiencing it differently, kind of like our, our Andrew situation, you know, like right. we both went through Andrew differently, um, even though it was the same event and we were from similar places and things like that. So the uniqueness of my experience of my reality, um, I became aware of it at like 
21 or so, 21, 22, that like, oh, wait a second, like this is kind of my show. You know, mm-hmm. I, I can't control anything that happens around me, but I can control how I perceive it and what I do with it. And so that was both sad to me, I think at the time, because I thought that like, you know, when you're single, you're looking to share your life with somebody and sharing a life to me meant like, oh, like my little double is going to run around the world with me or something. I don't know. But, mm-hmm. you know, you, you also, I think, gained a bigger uh, respect for other people as individuals and not just, um, I mean, I think when you say that I, I'm living my own reality, it almost sounds like, well, everybody then is your pawn in that reality. No, but it's, no. I meant more like they're, um, they also are living their own reality. And right. so they have ownership of their reality. I have ownership of mine. And that makes me respect you as an individual more. Um, and so that was, that was really, um, you know, you said like an aha moment mm-hmm. um, for me in my 20s. Um, and then when I had my kids, you know, I was trying to read all these parenting books and stuff. And um, one of them said something like, um, don't keep telling your kids that you're proud of them because then they are always looking for that outside uh, approval, that outside acknowledgement. Um, and it really needs to come from within. So from the time that they were really little, I don't know if it's stuck, but I would say, how do you feel about what just happened? Or, you know, um, you know, I, and that I love you no matter what you're accomplishing or not accomplishing, um, but that you've got to be your own best cheerleader. That's what I used to tell um, my oldest one all the time is you are your own biggest cheerleader. And then everything else is kind of under that. And if you're not, if the voice you're telling, talking to yourself with, is, you know, the cheerleader that's sitting on the sidelines, you know, laying down and not watching the game, then that's not the best cheerleader. Like you've got to, your voice has got to be the the most positive and the most loving and the most kind, because it's the one that you hear all the time. Right. Um, so, and, and it's the one that's going to follow you the rest of your life. And, and mom and dad and your brothers and your friends, they're all wonderful parts of your life. But ultimately, you mastering you is going to be your biggest challenge in life. And, um, and I've said that to them since they were babies, like you've got to, you are your biggest challenge, not school, not your friends, not what happens to you, but you learning about yourself, loving yourself and supporting yourself. That's going to be the hardest thing that you have to go through in life. Cause it's you all the time, <laughs> all the time. <laughs> All the oh. time. And that is so, that's so huge. And, and a lot of people don't truly understand that until they get a lot older than early 20s when you experience that kind of aha moment. Um, because it's true, especially, um, especially for people that are maybe in the healthcare field that uh, the healthcare field or the teaching field or um, these careers where it's all about helping others and you tend to forget about yourself and your own needs. Um, I think right now that I feel a big shift in self-care and mindfulness um, that I don't think was there years and years ago. Maybe back in the 60s with the hippies, you know, like the hippies with, you know, a lot of love and and peace and meditation. I think of them, you know. Yeah. And it does, my mom said a long time ago, um, you know, give it time. It all comes back around, you know. Yes. Whatever (laughs) it is, give it time. It'll all come back around. So um, very true. Well, and so how did, uh, how did your experience in, um, in work, being a social worker and investigating um, in-home and institutional child abuse and neglect cases, how did that shape your parenting? Oh my goodness. Well, I think I probably uh, alarmed so many new parents because I would, you know, here I was a new parent, but I'd had years of that experience And I just, it kind of haunted me, I think, for a very long time after I quit. 
and I would be at play dates or we'd meet up at the mall to play at the little play area. And, you know, these stories would just pop into my mind and I'd share them and the look on the other mom's faces, they're like, oh my God, this is how children live or this is what happens. And so I think it was just part of me processing through it by sharing those stories. I don't do it as much at all anymore. They still come to me. Um, unfortunately, like late at night, you know, where you wonder, did you make the right decision? This kid is probably 20 now, and I'm still worried about this kid that's not a kid anymore. Right. Um, you know, whether I made the right choice or, or did the right thing for them or, or whatever. Um, you know, it, so on its own, not having kids that is a, a job that you, one, never forget, changes you deeply in, in experiencing it, which you don't realize at the time. You're just, you know, going through your day and doing these things and being exposed to these things. And then, you know, it kind of just sits back in your mind somewhere. And, um, you know, I couldn't drive around the county without seeing a road that reminded me of a case or um, certain towns that, that reminded me of cases or areas. Um, so they, it's like these permanent stories that are stuck in my head from other people's lives. But um, as far as a parent, uh, anytime, you know, I, I come from a, a long line of hot tempered Caribbean folk. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I do not have the best patience and sometimes the kids would do stuff that, you know, I'm, I'm doing something and then they're doing something that's in my mind insane, <laughs> you know, and, um, you know, your first reaction is not always to have patience with them. And um, I would think back to these cases and go, you know, don't ever lay a hand on these kids, you know, like no matter how tempted, even though I was spanked as a child, you know, with the belt, with a hand, um, <laughs> you know, I think that it really was um, a great education of, you know, how to have self-control. Um, it reminded me to have self-control, you know, when they were driving me crazy or when I was allowing myself to be driven crazy. Right. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, I think that knowing the law and knowing, um, what, what was, what's considered abuse, what's considered neglect, um, you know, it, it really educated me as a parent, um, where I think that a lot of times my cases were just parents that just, they've never taken a parenting class. They've never given an extra thought about being a parent. Um, and they're just living their life and being very reactionary which I would have been, you know, had I not been a social worker first, if I had not read all these books, you know, I'm a definitely a reactionary type person. I'm proactive in certain areas, but you know, when it comes to like human interaction, I'm, I'm a reactionary person. Um, so I think that a lot of times Um, I'm stressed. I'm overtaxed. I'm not prepared. I, I don't have a good grip of who I am and what I'm doing. And kids were maybe an afterthought or kids were there to, to keep a relationship together that shouldn't have been together in the first place. You know, like, so, so the kids are kind of like a byproduct of a chaotic life and, and the abuse is like a byproduct of a chaotic life, you know, and, um, I don't think that people go into it maliciously. You know, people think what a horrible person. And, and I think that I was well aware that they were just regular people on a, who never would probably have dreamed of being what they were and what they did and, and things like that. I mean, they were probably as guilty and appalled or whatever in some cases. Um, sometimes <laughs> some people are just so self-absorbed. They don't really, it's not even on their radar what they're doing to their kid. But um, yeah, I think that it was, it was very educational kind of to see the gamut of, of parenting before mm -hmm. I was a parent. Um, the institutional stuff, um, seeing the, the kids in the jails and the detention center over and over and over again, they were really, a, them and the foster kids were, majority of my cases in institution, um, in institutional cases. And of course I had daycares and things like that, but, um, it really made me concerned for the future because I looked at these kind of forgotten, neglected, abused children who end up in the system, whether it's the foster care system or the juvenile justice system. 
And I just look at them as future adults, future parents. And it, it, it was very depressing because I felt like if something, if someone, something does not intervene, then the cycle will just continue. We'll continue to have dysfunction, you know, and it's, it's, I hate to see, um, loss of human potential. Mm -hmm. I see everybody from birth has the potential to be great and to see these kids just kind of thrown away, um, in various forms, uh, was really upsetting, you know? Right. Well, and I think, I think with that, um, exposure and experience, uh, that has shaped you also to be an advocate and, um, you know, to educate others on, um, kind of changing the systems because we know that the systems aren't helping the matter. And, um, and, you know, I know that, I know that sometimes politics can be difficult, um, but it's, it's important because a lot of these systems are broken and, you know, how we, how we, what we can do to improve them so that these kids are not lost to the system um, is really, it's really important because they're a part of the future. And yep. it's, and when you look at and think of the numbers of like, I'm, our county is one of the biggest counties on the East coast, you know, and, um, I had thousands of kids, just my caseload, thousands of kids. Um, and you just multiply that out across the state, you multiply that out across the country. Um, and you just think of the millions of, of kind of lost, neglected, abused kids um, in various levels of, of the system, whether it's the education system, the foster care system, the juvenile justice system. Um, it's, 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 it's very sad and it's very frustrating because I feel like um, the people who are most vulnerable and neglected are the ones that are never going to get the help. So, you know, there's no real big motivator out there aside from human kindness and decency to ever change these things. So when you're vulnerable, you continue to be um, stepped on. Yes. Forever. Because nobody's going to care enough. You know, people listen to those in power, people to listen, listen to people with money. Um, so power and money will just always kind of override these more soft human things. My husband always calls it the, um, he calls it the galaxy test. He says, if, if aliens from another planet, galaxy, whatever, came down to the U.S. or to the earth, and saw us doing, and then fill in the blank behavior, mm -hmm. what would they think of us? You know, and, and it's kind of a Star Trek reference, you know, like I guess the Star Trek, they go all over the, the, the universe and the galaxy and they're, um, you know, kind of getting a, a peep on different uh, social societies and ways of being and, and, and things like that. And so that's where he, I'm sure he gets it from. But um, he's like, you know, what, what would another entity think coming in and looking at how we treat our children, how we educate each other. Um, but, you know, like I said, fill in the blank, uh, right? If they were looking at football, what would they think of us? If, you know, if they were looking at boxing, then we stand in a ring and we just beat each other to death. Like, you know, um, if they saw how we treated each other on different subjects, what would they think of us as, as a, a, a race of beings? And uh, it's, it's not anything that sometimes I'm proud of the way that we treat each other and the way that we behave um, and the priorities that we make. Our priorities are often about money and power. Yes. Which are things that, you know, in the end don't really matter much. It's how we talk to each other, how we treat each other, our experiences, our kindness, our love. That's in the end, you know, what you're going to, you know, be remembered for and what you're going to. Um, what, what makes your life rich, you know, 
when, when you're in the coffin, you're not taking your money and your power with you. You know, you're just as dead as the next guy. And what did you leave behind? And um, money and power can help you leave great legacies behind. So I'm not knocking them. Right. But um, <laughs> if, if that's, if that's all that's going on um, as a society, then um, I think we're missing, we're missing the point. Yes. Well, and, and I know that you and I, uh, I think that we share that acknowledgement and also recognize that it is about the human experience and the connection that you make. Um, and it's not about, it's not about the, uh, latest trend or, you know, the money in the bank account. Um, it's just, you know, trying to, uh, do good and be good and, you know, make a positive impact and, um, you know, share kindness and, and love. And, you know, that's kind of why this, this podcast is, um, is coming to fruition because I think it's important that, that other people know there's many, many, many people in the world that feel the same way as we do. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, uh, recognize, um, you know, recognize the importance of kindness and compassion, um, to, and not just, um, you know, not just being around other people that are exactly cookie cutter, just like you, you know, Mm -hmm. um, getting to know people that are different than you or that have different religious backgrounds or different cultures or, um, you know, everybody, everybody is human and everybody wants, um, to be loved and they want security and safety. And, um, you know, so I just hope that, that shining a light on, people that are um, making a positive impact and that are not all about money and greed and power. Um, You know, I think that that's going to take us a lot farther. Um, So I hope so. (laughs) I hope so too. So as we are, um, as we're kind of winding down, I wanted, I, I, I saw that you had some excellent advice that was given to you um, by an old boss. And do you remember what that was? Yeah, his name was uh, Joe Keeley. He was my first supervisor when I became a social worker, I guess, as a, as a child abuse investigator. And, you know, I, I gave my job a lot of attention because I was so concerned about all these families and all these things and making sure that I was, you know, having integrity in my caseload. And, um, and it's a very time demanding job. And uh, I think at the time I was just engaged. I didn't have kids yet. And, and Keith and I were just engaged and, um, he called me into his office and he was like, Ingrid, you know what your problem is? You give a hundred percent to this job. And I was just like, what? <laughs> like, what boss brings you in and tells you that's your problem, yeah. you know? And I was like, okay, well, I don't, I, you know, and of course I was always such a pleaser that, you know, I was the, the straight A student or whatever. And so here I have my boss telling me that I have an issue. Yes, I'm already like nervous and upset <laughs> to be pulled into the office. And then for him to, I was so just perplexed that he told me that, you know, I'm giving too much to this job. Um, I never expected a boss to tell you to quit working so hard, but that's basically what he said. And he's like, if you're coming in here and you're giving this job a hundred percent, then what percent are you giving to keep? What percent are you keeping? And, um, you know, these families and, and these situations will be here after you. They were here before you. Um, you know, you make the marks that you can on your cases while you're here, but like you can't give your life to this. And if in a minute you can be replaced, if, if you quit or we fire you, you're replaced in a second. But when you're at home 
and you, you know, later down the line have kids, that's where you're irreplaceable. And so his words, and then my experiences with daycare investigations, um, when I did have my own kids, you know, I was actually offered a promotion um, to take over the entire area um, as, a, as a program admin office administrator. So like, you know, like a double promotion essentially. Um, and I just couldn't do it because I was like, I would have less time with my children. I'd have to put my son in, in daycare because um, Keith was going back to work at the time. He was a, a Mr. Dad or whatever that is at the time. <laughs> Um, and I was like for two full-time high paid, you know, six figures each or whatever. And then my kids in daycare and I knew what daycare was and I, and, and no daycare is perfect. I've, I've, I've investigated them in poor areas and rich areas, you know, and I did not want to put my nonverbal child, a vulnerable child in a situation with strangers, um, when, you know, I'm the mother, I chose to have this child, you know, like I want to be present um, for him. And so I turned it down and I stayed home because I just felt like that's where I will make the biggest impact. Um, not necessarily to be the most unforgettable or whatever, or irreplaceable or, or whatever, but, um, you know, I think you have to choose at different stages of your life where you put your time and your effort. Um, and so his words really helped me kind of evaluate that every once in a while. Like I got really, uh, involved in the PTA and the school system and just getting riled up about all the wrongs <laughs> of the school system. And I had to think back to that and go, you know, 10 years from now, my impact on the school system may not be as great on as the impact I'm going to make on with my kids. So I dialed it way back and said, you know, if I've got hundred percent of time, I'm not giving 20% to the PTA. I'm not giving, you know, when I'm older and, and my kids are grown, then I can dedicate, you know, time to these causes. But I, I felt like I was, what do they say? Robbing Peter to pay Paul or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. like I can't, I can't steal from where I really want to be focusing my attention um, by trying to carry too much. Um, mm -hmm. So I do little snippets of stuff um, and get involved in things in degrees, but that has always kind of uh, made me stop and evaluate when I think of what he said, you know, mm -hmm. am I giving equal percentage or percentage where I want to be putting it? Right. And um, raising, raising boys uh, in this, in this society, it, it's, it's tough. It, it's the hardest thing in the world. <laughs> um, there are lots of challenges and, you know, you still find a way to get involved in community activities and get them involved and to show them that there is more to life, um, than, than video games, <laughs> games. <laughs> video games and, 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 and their schooling, you know, like that the world is a big place. And I think that's what I really wanted to hit home with them is that they have to find community wherever they are, whether it's, you know, within our neighborhood, I try to get them involved or within our city, within our County, um, trying to get them to volunteer a lot more. And, um, when we travel, we try to, you know, we would take road trips because you see more of where you're going than when you fly. Plus it's cheaper. Um, <laughs> but, but, um, you know, I want them to see how other people live and who other people are, what other places are like and, and see the scope of, of what life is and what living is. Um, while I have them under my, my tutelage, you know, I know that the years are, are spinning past pretty fast and, um, you know, I've got maybe four or five years left of, of, of direct influence. Yes. Um, so I'm trying to make the most of it and, and have the boys be exposed to as much as they can be um, of, of life. You know, I don't want to say positive or negative, but just, you know, of all of it, you know, that because I think it also gives you um, more empathy to see the gamut of how life 
the, the diversity of life, you know, not just uh, ethnic, but like economic diversity, geographic diversity, um, mental, emotional diversity, you know, like I, I just want them to be aware of the human life experience. Yes. To the, to the biggest degree, because I, like you said, I, I think that getting into a cubby hole of people who look just like me, talk just like me, uh, live just like me, um, and you get in this little bubble where, you know, I can't now communicate or relate even to people who are even slightly different from me. And that can produce people who aren't just insular, but also aggressive, hateful, um, because they can't connect. And I, I don't want to raise children who cannot connect with other people on, on, on whatever level or whatever plane they're on with respect. Um, you and I may be opposite political parties. We may live in opposite um, levels of economic wealth or whatever, um, but we should be able to carry on a conversation and give each other um, basic amounts of, of respect and courtesy um, no matter what. And so I think that that's part of our job as parents is to try to expose kids and give kids experiences that make them as well-rounded and global as you possibly can. A hundred percent. I, yes, yes, yes. I, you know, those, those global exposures or those, um, you know, just traveling and the road trips and, and seeing, seeing how other people live and um, exactly exactly like you so eloquently stated but just there there is so much diversity and when when we can expose expose our kids to that then they realize you know there's there's so much to the world and it does create compassion and empathy um and i think it also I think it also helps um, kids not to feel, or anyone, I think it helps you not to feel as stuck or pigeonholed because you realize um, that there are more opportunities out there. Um, you yes. know, it may be hard to pick up and move somewhere else if your situation is not suiting you, but knowing that there are there's something out there for everyone no matter no matter what there there are other people that you know that you can connect with um but you don't know that unless you get out to experience all there is to experience and it doesn't have to cost a lot of money you can mm -hmm. you know you can pitch a tent and go to a, a park you know, go to a, a, a state park or a national park or go hiking, you know, it doesn't have to be expensive. Um, there are ways, there are ways to experience these um, life events or life experiences and it doesn't have to cost a lot. I, seg I segue to your South Florida finds. So tell us about South Florida Finds. Well, when the boys were little tiny, and this is before Google is all that Google is now, um, or at least I didn't know about it as, as much when the kids, this is probably 10, 12 years ago, I guess. Um, you know, I just had two little boys with a lot of energy and you, you, get, you feel insulated, you feel um, stuck inside, you feel um, separate from the rest of the world sometimes when you're a new parent and with two kids back to back, same age, you know, like a year apart, um, you're in the same boat <laughs> with yes. two boys back to back. Um, you know, you can go a little bit crazy, like cabin fever kind of crazy and, and feel alone and things like that. And so, um, you know, I was part of Meetup, which was a, a way of meeting up with other um, moms and kids and things like that. But you know, I just had to get them out of the house in the morning and I had to get them out of the house in the afternoon for my sanity, for them, <laughs> you know, so they didn't tear up the house. Um, and I just was like, well, where are all the parks? Where are all the, 
um, you know, the kid-friendly events, where are the attractions, you know, and I'm trying to, you know, maximize our budget, you know, like how much is everything like and be able to have it all easily, readily available in one place. Like if you wanted to know about the county park, you had to go to the county website and then, you know, you could have a city park right next to you and not know about it if you didn't pass it or didn't like go to the city's website. So initially it was a way to kind of get like the local, the state, the county um, parks, the federal parks all in one place so that I could like look up playground and then have everything that was a playground in Point and Beach or whatever city show up. So I really just wanted this tool <laughs> to be um, a quick, easy way to find what you're looking for. You're looking for a baseball field, you're looking for a playground, you're looking for a water splash pad or um, whatever it is. And um, I get bored easily. I, I can go to the same park a handful of times and then I really need to go somewhere else. And so um, that's how it began was I just wanted to kind of aggregate all these parks and all the details of the amenities that are at these parks and be able to make it searchable in one place, like a one-stop party shop for families for recreation. Yes. Um, Cause family time a lot of times is, you know, going to the park or going to the attraction. I mean like, and, and people who both parents are working full time and, you know, the kids are in daycare till six o'clock. I mean, some of these kids don't get picked up till seven. Um, your time with your family is so small and precious. Um, and I wanted people to be able to get in, get what they need and get to playing together, get to hanging out together without it being a burden. Like all the research that I did to put things on South Florida finds, most families don't have time for that. You just don't have the time to, to look up all these places. And, um, and, and there's such amazing um, amenities out there that are free. We've paid for them. They're tax paid, you know, like they're, they're, this is a free, easy way for families to go and spend time together um, without spending a lot of um, research time to do it. So the idea was that, and then I added events that, you know, were free or low cost events that families could do together. Um, a lot of times newspapers who pays, whoever pays for an ad is usually geared toward more adult entertainment. Like it's a bar crawl or it's a, you know, it's, it's a party thing. And so I wanted to weed out all the family stuff and put it in one place. And again, this is before, um, you know, Facebook and Google started doing uh, events and things like that. But it was just supposed to be like a a website that you could go to, find out what's happening near you that's family friendly, get to a park, get to a local attraction, and kind of be like a tourist in your own backyard, but with your family, you know, make the most of your quality time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and those active life family experiences you know, the bike rides and the parks and the splash pads and everything, you know, the, it, it's so important to be able to get out of the house, even more so now than it was when our kids were even younger. Um, you know, I've seen, I've seen a huge difference even in the seven to nine years since um, my third was born. You know, the, the older boys are seven and nine years older than um, our third, and what a huge difference in in everything in life in activities um, in you know it's it it seems like it was simpler back then, and it really? it was oh, only <laughs> it was only uh you know seven eight nine years ago um it's it's definitely a challenge. So, having having a uh, a resource like South Florida Finds, or having having friends that you can hit up for, hey, what's the what's the best splash pad, or you know, recommendation for uh, tent camping in you know your backyard, or or at the local um, the local county park down the street. Uh, or snorkeling in the area or whatever um, because those those um, connected moments are are so important 
especially in the day and age of electronics and devices and video games and that sort of thing. Definitely. And I I was so happy with the Pokemon Go thing. Like, I don't like Pokemon. I'm not into video games. Um, (laughs) But I, having done South Florida Finds, I would go to parks and they'd be empty. It was me, my kids. That's it, you know. (laughs) And when Pokemon happened, I would see tons of people at certain parks because certain, like the inlet, the Boynton Inlet, is like we get these very rare Pokemon at the inlet. You know, it's because my kid played it. So I know about these rare characters, but you would see so many more people at the parks. And so, you know, I know a lot of people poo-pooed it and made fun of it, but I was like, as a parks person to look and see parks just being used now and people being out in the park that otherwise would have just sat in front of the TV and done Netflix or, just never even left their house, a lot of these people. And um, you could tell by how, how pale they were that they never, ever left the house. And um, I'm kidding. But, you know, it was, it was, I loved Pokemon Go because people actually went outside, mm-hmm. which I think was the original, you know, goal of the thing was to get people to go out again. Um, and I see babies now with cell phones and iPads and literally babies you know they just stick it right in front of their face and um I did a little of that when the kids were little but it wasn't you know an iPad it was like a little portable DVD player on a road trip or something but um I just think that so much of their time is just wasted I saw something once where they said um when when your kids are going to grow when when you grow up you don't look back and talk about your favorite TV episodes but you will talk about your bike rides with your parents. You know what I mean? Like, and it was a much more succinct and cute quote (laughs) that I'm remembering, but that sticks out in my head all the time. Like when I find us kind of being lethargic and laying around the house, I'm like, let's get the bikes. We're going to just go out for a bike ride or, Hey, let's go over to the pool or let's do something. Because while I, I spent most of my childhood in the eighties watching, you know, facts of life and Nell and what's happening and every rerun of Bonanza and, you know, and I do remember those shows fondly, but I would much, much rather have had, um, those memories of doing things with my parents or doing things with my siblings than sitting alone in front of a black and white TV watching Bonanza or WWF wrestling or whatever it was that I was I watched right. anything and everything back then because you you had to watch whatever was on TV right <laughs> not like kids these days they get to pick whatever they want to watch and and you know it's it's amazing what they have at their fingertips and and it's wonderful and I'm not gonna keep them away from that to you know to social media no social media but um I, 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 I love that they have all that they have but I don't want them to have the this is a precious amount of time that we have with them as parents. And I don't want the memories to be of sitting in front of a TV, you know? Right. Right. Not at the expense of time together outside, you know, well, and and interacting, (laughs) yeah, interacting and, and nature is so healing anyway. Uh, You know, we know, we know the, the physical and emotional benefits of nature, but getting out of the house and interacting and communicating and connecting and having that quality time is, is so important. I don't know if this was the case with your boys, but I know that when the boys were babies, if they're screaming, crying, you could walk outside and they would like almost instantly stop. And to me, that's very indicative of, us at our, I guess, most basic core is like that baby. When we step outside, the the release that you can have, the the you know, taking a walk through the woods with the pine needles crunching under your feet, and you know, the f- I try to say fresh air. It's not always fresh, um, the, you know, but the fresh air and the birds and the sunshine on your face, you know, the leaves with the dappled light, you know, it's it's very very calming and soothing. Um, for us just naturally. So yeah, by um, nature. I think that we do a, dis- a disservice being in the house all the time. I think it's horrible. It's sad, you know, that that's the reality for a lot of people. 
sometimes just for lack of the energy to do something else or the imagination or, or whatever it could be. I don't know, but yeah, I wish we spent more time in the parks and out in nature than we do. That, that actually just reminded me of, um, uh, the, the, um, the library that you set up at the park. Yeah. So share with our listeners, if they're looking to be inspired uh, to do something like this, tell, tell everyone uh, what you did. Um, well, I've always loved libraries. Um, I think it makes it feel like a holiday year round when you go and you pick up like 50 books and come home and you can, you know, share them with your kids or read them yourself. Or I just have always found peace in gardens and libraries. I've always said those two places I love. Um, and so I'd heard about the little library movement and I thought, you know, that sounds really cool. And we were visiting one over by my brother's, um, group home. Um, and so I was like, I want one mm-hmm. <laughs> in my neighborhood, but we live in a, in a, a homeowners association neighborhood. So you can't just go stick it in the yard and put some books in it. So it had to be a little bit of a process of going before the board and, asking and promising to take care of it and and then um I still have glue on the on the tile in my living room from putting it together as Mm -hmm. it got put together on on the floor in my living room um and I've I've now passed the torch I used to be the steward the library steward and I had tons of books in my house and I was changing them out and having like the history week and and sci-fi week and you know, kids books, you know, picture book week. And I would do all these little fun things with the library to get people to, to use it. Um, and I think we have regulars now because there's constantly new books in there. But I've passed on the torch to my mother who lives on the other side of my same neighborhood. And she now is the little library steward. And, um, you know, who knows, maybe it'll keep being passed along. I think everybody should be involved in it you know I think we should take turns being the steward for the library because it's a community um, asset and it's something that we all kind of enjoy and I love driving past it and seeing like a little gaggle of kids in front of it or yes someone walks by I kind of hesitate to see are they gonna stop you know (laughs) so um yeah it's it's been a cute little addition to the neighborhood and um there's a quote from a place. I don't know. Have you ever been to Bach Tower in Lake Wales? Have not toured it, but we've passed it. Yes. Uh, I've been going there since I was a little kid. And I believe his name was Edward Bach. I don't want to call him the wrong name on here. But um, anyway, he had a saying that was is everywhere in the garden now that is um, make you the world a bit better or more beautiful because you've lived in it. So to me, my little library is my little Edward Bach moment because um, it's not a big deal. It's a little thing. It's a little box. You know, it's a little corner. mailbox with uh, painted to be a little library, and you yep. put books of all sorts, types in there. And people yep. can can borrow and give back and trade it and. Yep. And, and it'll disintegrate one day and not be there. And it's not like a lasting legacy or anything like that. But I did my one little thing to kind of brighten the, the corner, to brighten life for those around me. And I think that ultimately, I think I mentioned before, like I, I'm not here to be the next Desmond Tutu or, or Nelson Mandela or Gandhi or whatever, but I can do these little things um, within my own community, within my own realm, my own area to make the world a little bit more beautiful and better, um, from having lived in it. And so I've always, uh, had that quote also in the back of my head. And of course I've taken my kids to Bach tower, um, many, many times and, and bring that up. So I'm sure it will hopefully stick in their minds when they're adults, you know, that they should do little things, you know, it's not always the big, the big gestures. It's the, the way that we hold the door open for someone or, you know, pick up something they drop or whatever, just little things that we do for each other every day. We have the chance. I tell the, the boys all the time that like, um, if you imagine yourself as like a vessel and you're either adding lightness or adding darkness to it, every action that you take either adds light or contributes to the darkness. And so these little things 
they light you up as well as the people around you and it spreads light. And so that's, that's what I think we're here for is to spread light as much as we can. And it doesn't have to be this big, scary, confusing project or, or, you know, huge endeavor. It could just be little things, you know, that we do for each other or with each other or for each other. Yes. That make the world better. Yes. Well, and on that note, because you are a light and you are shining bright and I'm so glad that you joined me here because, because this is, this is, um, adding positivity and you have added positivity to my life. And I wanted to, um, to share you with everyone. So thank you for joining us. And thank I'm you, so Laura. Glad you, you, you bring light to our life as well. <laughs> I love seeing you. Thank Even you. if it's on a Zoom call. <laughs>